today we have a special guest. We have the privilege of hearing from Steve Watson each summer. Steve is the lead pastor of our sister church in Cambridge. This is the church that Caroline and Charles Park were a part of and helped start. And now Steve is the lead pastor. He's here with his family today. And I think we're in for a treat. So Steve, I'm I'm pausing, I'm stalling, and you're not coming up here. <laughs> Sorry, Sarah. Thank you, Steve. Please, please welcome Steve. Thanks, Sarah. Do I stand here, here, either? Uh, What's if the... you stand up there, you're not walking. I stand here. All right. Uh, hey, as Sarah mentioned, I'm Steve. I um, have the pleasure of showing up here once a year to join you all. It's become a bit of a tradition for me. Uh, I've discovered today I came in the wrong weekend, so that church picnic looks really fun. So um, thanks for inviting me on the wrong weekend, Sarah and John. Uh, um, actually, I'm not sure this church exists outside of July, because I don't think I've been here other than July in years, but I, I hope you're around other times. Um, yeah, as uh, Sarah mentioned, the parks uh, were part of our community years ago. Um, we do consider uh, this, the river a, a kind of special relationship to us at Reservoir. It's so nice to be here. I've traveled to India with the Firsties as well. And so um, I know I don't know most of you by name, but it's great to see you all. And it's really fun to, to be here and to continue this relationship between our churches. Um, I'd love to pray for us and then uh, share some stuff that's on my mind and heart today. So let's pray just for a moment. Thanks, God, for this uh, beautiful exceptional day in this, in this beautiful place, these beautiful people. God, thank you that uh, we come with some uh, hope or faith or expectation or maybe even wondering that uh, we'd be in this room, not just with one another, but with a God of light and wonder and beauty and love, a God that could meet us in our most extraordinary joys, a God that could be with us too in our most extraordinary pains, our doubts, our difficulties, and even in our uh, ordinary mundane spaces as well. God, we call out to you this morning to be good to us, all those who we love who are not with us, to be good to those who challenge us, those we would even count our enemies, to be good to the bigger people and situations going on all around us throughout this day. God, on my heart, I ask you in particular today, on this particular morning, to be good and merciful, to be a God of protection and hope to those who fear detention, those who fear the immigration raids that have been announced. God, we pray that you be a protective and kind, merciful presence to all those who need you in particular deep ways today. We pray, God, for those of us in this room as well, that you'd be an encourager to us. Literally, like by your presence, God, that you would encourage us, that you'd fill our hearts, that you give us all that we need uh, for beautiful, hopeful, powerful lives on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I've been enjoying, uh, again recently, the book of Psalms from the Bible. I'll, I'll start there. I used to think that God or my faith in God would give me a nice life, would give me a neat life, would give me a complete life. Uh, but decades into this journey of faith, I find my life is still not always very nice. My uh, life is not particularly neat and in many ways very much incomplete. I still have more uh, questions than answers around faith and really all the big things of life. And so in the Bible's a public book of prayer, 
I feel very much at home because the Psalms are this invitation to bring the whole messy experience of life that we have into community and into relationship with God and to see what good can come of bringing all that stuff into the light. And so today this is going to take us into the experience of doubt and how rather than being an obstacle to our faith or a wrecker of our faith, as maybe some of us have been taught or have feared, doubt can be our friend. And doubt can be our help, or doubt can at least be a companion that we can learn to make peace with on a journey of faith. I'm going to start reading part of this psalm, Psalm 77. We'll start with the first half that goes like this. It says, I cry out loud to God, out loud to God so that he can hear me. (laughs) Which is like a really funny line. Like, God is like sort of hard of hearing when you're really loud. Like, ah, now God's there. Okay. That's the main sermon. Okay. During the day when I'm in trouble, I look for my Lord. At night, my hands are still outstretched and don't grow numb. My whole being refuses to be comforted. I remember God and I moan. I complain and my spirit grows tired. Selah. You've kept my eyelids from closing. I'm so upset I can't even speak. I think about days long past. I remember years that seem an eternity in the past. I meditate with my heart at night. I complain and my spirit keeps searching. Will my Lord reject me forever? Will he never be pleased again? Has his faithful love come to a complete end? Is his promise over for future generations? Has God forgotten how to be gracious? Has he angrily stopped up his compassion? Selah. I read a survey once that talked about the experience that pastors have on Sundays and how many of us feel like we have to fake it to not be our true selves or share our true thoughts before our churches. And the survey said it was lots and lots of us. It was kind of eye-opening. I thought about that, how pastors have often had these particularly intense and positive experiences of faith in their lives, but then life is long and all of us suffer. And some pastors in that context get the vibe that their church wants a leader whose life is untroubled and victorious, kind of rises above the fray as blessed by God, they might say. And so when all that doesn't seem to be true, the pastor then fakes it through personal pain and trouble. Even more pastors feel their churches want a teacher or a spiritual model who has no error and no doubt, who has certain total confidence in all God's truth and goodness. And that's a really high bar for anyone to have in life. And so if you think that's what's expected of you in your job or even in your whole identity, of course, you're going to need to fake it there as well. Because all of us, people of any life of faith, spiritual teachers included, we all have doubts. I've had all kinds of doubts. I won't um, like categorize them or uh, completely name them all for you personally, but I've noticed that my doubts are stirred up really unpredictably. I've faced, for instance, the death of some people really dear and close to me and had upon their death this really deep confidence in God's care for their spirit in their coming life in the age to come. But then there have been times where someone not even particularly close to me has died, and I won't be able to shake the question of whether death might be like the end of everything for all of us. Grace, my wife and I, we've had these horrible fears about our children. We've been sure at moments that, even in really tough places, that God is with us in our parenting, that God's going to be really good and sweet to our kids and take care of everything. And then we've seen one of our kids face like a relatively minor, you know, hiccup, speed bump in the road. 
And we've wondered, like, God, are you really good at all? Are you really present to us or our family or anyone in the world at all? Do you care, God? We don't always know, like, why or when we doubt. It's really unpredictable, but all of us do. It's really normal to have doubts about who and what we hope God to be, to have doubts about things we've believed, things we've hoped were true. We feel, we think, we learn as humans. Our brains are meant to be active and wonder and ask questions. That's a good thing, but that also means they doubt. And if we ever wondered whether this was or wasn't okay with God, we see it right in the pages of scripture, like in the opening to this psalm with a writer just airing it out, saying, God doesn't listen to me. God doesn't love me. Even thinking about who or what this silent, absent God must be, like totally exhausts me. The faith that God would be good, compassionate, promise-keeping, person wonders, maybe that's a faith of the past. There's this kind of like longing or ache that the psalmist feels of like, maybe the generations to come will see even less of God. Like, oh, that's a fear many of us of faith feel as well. This person's saying like all their doubts to God freely. Then they're writing them down. They're passing them on to others to copy. They're writing music for these words. They're saying them again and again amongst others, passing them down amongst generations. There's so much attention given to these statements of doubt that they make it into the Bible's book of great prayers. There's even this kind of little bit, this untranslated word we normally skip over if we read Psalms. I read it twice, though. It says Selah at the end of some of the lines of the Bible and church traditions have kept a few untranslated Hebrew words in our vocabulary. So there's this word hallelujah. We sing in song sometime, which is Hebrew for something like you praise God. This word amen, which has been used multiple times in this room already, which is Hebrew for something like so be it or yes. And then there's this lesser known Selah, which... We actually really don't know for sure what it means, but it's a pause. It's a good chance it's a cue for musicians maybe to some kind of interlude. And I like that here because it's like the psalmist gets to doubt and moan and say these kind of wondering, angry words and then stop for a while for some people to play some sad, sad songs, like just like we might in that circumstance. These sad songs for sad times to accompany prayers of doubt for a doubting mind. I think what I see here first is that doubt doesn't need to be, it shouldn't be hidden as if it's something to be ashamed of or afraid of. Doubt needs light. Our doubts actually need to be expressed. A lot of us assumed, or maybe we were taught the opposite, that doubt should be stuffed down, that they should be denied or they should be hidden away as if doubt was another imperfection that made God angry with us or maybe made God disappointed in us. That comes from a fear-based faith. And the most common form of a fear-based faith, uh, really in any religion, is a form of fundamentalism, which just means that you have no room for doubt and no room for error. That's fundamentalism in any religious or faith expression, to have no room for doubt, no room for error, to need to always be right and always be certain. And this need to always be right and certain isn't actually good faith. It's actually sin. That's the point of the book that a Bible scholar named Pete Enns wrote called The Sin of Certainty. And one point that he makes in this book is that uh, if we always need to have certain confidence in all our beliefs about God, that is not to trust God more. That is not like a model of faith. That is to trust God less. Life's really hard and confusing again. We learn new things. We have new experiences that, of course, are going to change our mind about some things we thought we knew. And we're going to doubt some things we hope are true as that happens. 
And so to never change our mind, to need to be certain about all truth isn't faith, it's this fear of error or doubt. To never change our mind, to need to be certain that everything we were once taught about God or life is true, it's actually to kind of box God into a particular form that one person or one moment in time in tradition taught us. As if we could ever confidently know everything there is to know about something so big, someone so big we would call God. So real faith isn't total confidence about God. It's trust in God. It's trust with God. Even in the midst of all our doubt and error, right? To trust God, to have faith, is to know like, sure, we can't know for sure anything that we think. We'll likely be wrong about some things. We'll doubt some other things that are important to us. And yet we can continue to hope and trust that God is present and good beyond and within even all that we don't know for sure. So faith, again, isn't the opposite of doubt. Faith actually includes our doubts. So I just kind of want to start off today on this topic of faith to say, like, doubt and any experience of doubt you have had or do have or will have, it's okay. Doubt is normal. Doubt's a normal part of faith, and it needs light, not fear. I want to read the rest of the psalm and see where it takes us and take us to a little more personal place of my own doubt and faith. So Psalm finishes like this. It's my misfortune, I thought, that the strong hand of the Most High is different now. My bad luck that it seems God has changed. But I will remember the Lord's deeds. Yes, I will remember your wondrous acts from times long past. I will meditate on all your works. I will ponder your deeds. God, your way is holiness. Who is as great a God as you, God? You are the God who works wonders. You have demonstrated your strength among all peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, redeemed the children of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and reeled. Even the deep depths shook. The clouds poured water. The skies cracked thunder. Your arrows were flying all around. The crash of your thunder was in the swirling storm. Lightning lit up the whole world. The earth shook and quaked. Your way went straight through the sea. Your pathways went right through the mighty waters. But your footprints left no no trace. You led your people like sheep under the care of Moses and Aaron. So Psalm makes this shift that shows us like the wild places of doubt and trouble. They call for these sad songs, but they also call for old songs. Our doubts need light. They need expression, but they also remind us that we need roots. We need to engage our personal and our collective, our shared memory. When the psalmist going through this hardest season of life and is full of doubt about everything, it seems like a great reminder for them to remember the oldest and best stories of God that they know. For the psalmist, this is the story of what's called the Exodus, the founding rescue story of Israel, retold here in poetry. Where the psalmist like, remember that time when God helped our ancestors? Remember that time when the seas fled from our feet, when the waters pulled back at God's voice. Remember that time when the impossible was actually made possible, when God helped us, when God freed us, when the skies lit up in wonder. Remember? What anchors us, I wonder? Like what keeps us rooted when we're troubled and when we doubt? I used to think psalms like this were like magical thinking. 
We could remember the greatest God story we've ever been told from the past and imagine that exact same thing would surely happen again tomorrow. The thing is, the psalmist knows this isn't true. The psalmist actually starts this recollection by thinking God's ways seem so different today than yesterday. And in one sense, that's true. The miracle of the Exodus here happened just once in this form. And for the psalmist, it was hundreds of years in the distant past. Like us today remembering something that happened in like the 1400s and being cheered up by that fact. That's what's happening here, right? By the time this, this psalm was published, if not written, we don't know when it was written, but by the time it was published, Israel was scattered again. Its kings were deposed. Its temple was destroyed. All its dreams were deferred. Even when the people that was known as ancient Israel gathered in Israel, in uh, Jerusalem again, when they reachieved a certain form of freedom and flourishing and published this psalm book, Israel's temple and collective hopes would then again be destroyed by the Roman Empire in the generations to come. And so it's just like historical fact. I think the psalm is likely aware of. God was not showing up for them with another exodus like this every day. Not even every century. And yet, like this was still their story. This was still what their God was like. No one could take that away from them. And I love that the psalm in the middle of this memory says God is holy. It reminds us that God's holiness isn't primarily about some kind of abstract moral perfection. Like this sort of doing every single thing right that none of us could ever achieve. God's holiness is really about loving faithfulness about seeing through promises of goodness to individuals and like collections of people. What makes God different, what makes God perfect, isn't like an abstract thing at all. It's that God is ever-present, never-stopping love. And the Exodus is one really important story of that love. And it's like the psalmist asks and wonders, like, what form will that never-stopping love take next? I wonder again, like, what God stories can anchor us? What stories of God can keep us rooted and grounded when we doubt, when we change, when things change around us? We've learned as parents, if any of your parents are kind of educators interested in the raising of children, we've learned that it's really important for kids to know where they come from. It's a really powerful thing. It's been kind of proven that for parents to tell their kids their origin stories, To say to a kid, like, this is what it's like. This is what it was like on the day you were born. Here's what you were like as a baby. These are the stories of your birth and the stories of your childhood, the stories of your roots. To say to a kid, it's like this great gift to say to a kid, let me tell you, child, where you came from. Kids are really anchored and grounded by these stories. Adults, if we have them, are still anchored and grounded by these stories. They remind us of how we're known and loved, how we matter, how we're people of significance. They keep us grounded when so much about our identity and our future is unknown and insecure. So all of us, we need stories. We need old stories. We need stories of roots. We need stories from the Bible if they work from us. Stories from history. Stories from our own lives that remind us that God is present and that God is good to us all, even when that's really hard to see. Most of us, again, doubt when we learn new things that threaten our understandings of God and truth, or when we experience new things that threaten our view of how we've thought God and life work. And given that we live in times where we're 
learning and experiencing so many new things all the time. That means we actually, in like 21st century, you know, urban life, we are going to doubt more than our ancestors did. Just because we live and experience a, a kind of different pace of change than our ancestors did. And I want to tell you a story about how this happened for me and how a, a kind of anchored memory helped me have that doubt become my friend. Uh, I've been taught in my early years of Christian spiritual formation that part of the benefit of faith in Jesus was a present-day relationship with God, with the spirit and teaching of Jesus to be my um, you know, comfort, to be my guide in life. And I've been taught that part of the benefit of this faith, too, was an assurance of life forever with God beyond the grave. And I actually still think these things, and I still hope these things. But I'd also been taught that the only reason I could have assurance of all these benefits with Jesus in this life and in the age to come was that I had confessed with my mouth as I believed in my heart that Jesus was in charge of my life and that Jesus was the one true path to God. And I'd said this publicly in my baptism as well. And that's how I knew I could have this kind of special relationship with God. Well, like many of you, I have come to know over the years many, many delightful human beings, deep and good and surely loved by God, many of whom knew absolutely nothing about Jesus or for various reasons didn't think they wanted anything to do with faith in Jesus. Certainly didn't think they wanted anything to do with something called a Christian faith. Sometimes... I've actually discovered they've had pretty good reasons for this too. And I've seen a few of these really delightful human beings die. And I thought, surely God wouldn't love and preserve me and consign them to some form of like an eternal trash can just because my exposure to Jesus was more thorough or positive than theirs. That didn't make sense to me. And then I visited the city of Delhi for the first time in India. We at Reservoir have a close relationship with this beautiful community development work in Delhi done by an organization called Asha. We're introduced to Asha through our friends here at the river. And anyway, in Delhi, I'd never been in a city that large or that crowded. Now, I know Manhattan, compared to my little city of Boston, like makes us look like a village, the very big city. And yet, if you have never been to Delhi, well, I don't know, compared to Manhattan, it's just like it's a whole different story. Like tens of millions of people, and sometimes it seemed like they were all in the same traffic jam, like right in front of you, like a whole city. There's this like massive crush of humanity you often see in front of you. And I found myself asking now and then on my first trip, do all these people matter to God? Like numbers of massive people, like in front of my eyes, all at once. Like, do, does God care about them? Could God not be with them in some form? Statistically knowing, the great majority of people I'd ever seen in one place in Delhi had never heard of Jesus, or degree they had, didn't really know, know all that much about him. I've asked, do these people matter to God? Could, what eternal destiny is theirs? And the simple faith assertions I'd been taught in Jesus, like just couldn't all hold for me. The billions of people that have never heard of Jesus, the billions that have never said or thought these particular God-approved faith statements about Jesus. It had been implied in my faith that it's kind of a guarantee they had no access to God in this life and no hope for life beyond the grave. Now here I am in Delhi looking at all these people and to doubt that aspect of my faith seemed like the only reasonable and loving thing to do. It seemed sort of like mean or arbitrary to sort of hold on to the statement I've been taught. 
all these people, just because they'd lost like a genetic lottery and weren't born into families or communities that were really into Jesus. Like they get no God, just some kind of annihilation or hell after death. No chance at a sense of life that I had. This seemed random and unfair. It seemed unworthy of the big and kind God I'd come to love. So I doubted the beliefs I'd been taught. My mind was really troubled. Now, quick pause, say la here. <laughs> I've discovered like when you share your own doubts, part of the challenge of that is sometimes you like stir doubt in someone that didn't have that doubt, or you stir like angry defensiveness in someone that like doesn't have that doubt and disagrees with you. That's sort of the risk of talking about doubt at any like real deep authentic level, as opposed to like I doubt this trivial, unimportant thing. So if I can try here, if you can extend like a little trust to me, if I've shared about a troubling doubt in my faith that you've never had before and it doesn't particularly bother you today, it's not your burden to bear. (laughs) Don't worry about it. And if I'm sharing a doubt in something like some conviction that's really important to you and your faith and you're like, oh my gosh, like a pastor doesn't believe this one important thing that is like at the center of my faith. Like good news, I'm not your pastor. (laughs) I'm just a guest here. (laughs) So like you can just be like, first he's like, please don't have that man back. And you know, they'll they'll like say that, whatever. (laughs) All that's fine. Um, And you know, kidding aside, like uh, the faith in Jesus and the the Christian faith like has room for a lot of opinions and a lot of things. And so hopefully like if I, my views are like troubling to you today, like, you know, let's like be at peace with one another and you can just think I'm off and, and I would not be troubled by that. All right. There's my Selah. Okay. That said, like my spiritual journey I'm sharing here and here though, I found it wasn't like right when you're faced with these kind of doubts for me, these are central. Like does, do I abandon my faith? Do I shut them down and say, like, I don't know, that really bugs me, but I can't work it out. So I'm going to forget, forget, forget about that thought. I'll never have it again. Never go back to India, certainly, because it like messes with my faith, right? I find there's another option, though, because here, bringing it to light, and then the collective memory of my faith really served me. Because I remember that Christians haven't always thought this way about God and the afterlife. The way I had been taught was really just one particular Christian way of being taught. I remember children's books I heard about when I was young that I'd read in my um, early years of young adult faith. These books called The Chronicles of Narnia by a British guy, C.S. Lewis. I remembered a scene toward the end of the last book when a good and valiant guy from a far away country uh, dies in battle. And he confronts Aslan, which is the story's Jesus figure, after his death. And he doesn't know this Aslan, doesn't recognize him, never heard of his name, but his heart and his mind are like inclined to love and worship him. Because even though he didn't know Aslan's name, he trusted God best as he understood God to be in his life. And that had put his soul in a condition to continue to trust God beyond the grave as more and more of the personhood and beauty and personality of God was revealed to him. His soul was in a condition to be drawn toward light, to be drawn toward truth, to be drawn toward love. And so even in his journey beyond the grain, he was continued to be drawn toward God as he came to know God more fully. And in this story, C.S. Lewis wasn't actually making anything up. He was alluding to an old and deep Christian tradition that the life and death and life again of Jesus was not for a select few, but for all the earth and for all humanity, for sure. Those that knew Jesus by name and those that didn't yet. In this understanding, Jesus' new covenant was for the whole earth's participation, not just the people who had the luck to be born into places and times where they would hear in this life the name of Jesus. This is an orthodox view on Jesus and death and redemption at his roots in the New Testament, the Bible, and in the writing and faith of the early church fathers and mothers. And I remembered this as I looked at these masses of Delhi year after year, and it's made my initial doubts not a hindrance to faith, but this really constructive force. 
deepening and widening my faith, putting me in touch with beautiful and ancient hopes about the universal reach of Jesus and giving me more faith and more hope and more love in the world. So these experiences at one time were a source of troubling doubt. Don't give me doubt anymore because here doubt has been my teacher. Doubt has been an experience that's guided me and nudged me in part toward God and toward a deeper and broader faith. Now, as I've talked with other people about their experience of doubt, I've heard many stories like this, how doubting something we thought was true about God and life led to an openness to discover something else that's truer. For me, again, my doubt was part of a process that taught me more helpful and more beautiful and more faithful to my mind, hopes about heaven and hell and people and God and eternity. Doubt with light and memory can actually be like a safe companion like this. It can even be a teacher. It can help us adapt and help us change for the better. If we honestly and openly sit with our doubts, if we let them draw us toward conversation with God and friends, sometimes doubt can turn out to be our friend too. But I know all doubts aren't like this. Some of us have seasons of doubt that are hard and miserable, that are full of pain. For many, doubt can be this painful mind and heart-wrenching experience. For some, that's again because people have been taught a lot about hell or been taught that God is fearsome, if not outright random and mean. Part of it, too, is that people, including, I'm quite sure, people here in this room, have had doubts uh, born of like a heart-wrenching, gut-busting pain. Doubts that call their hopes and faith into question make them wonder, God, are you real? And God, if you are, how can you possibly be good? The kind of doubt that disappointment and pain can bring can leave us unfulfilled, can leave us empty, can leave us longing for more than we have now. And that's an awful feeling, but I want to end in this direction, that even the unfulfilled and empty and longing pangs of doubt may, as hard as it is to say, they may be part of a good thing for us. I want to be really clear about this. I'm not saying that our sadnesses or our losses are good. The deep pains we or our loved ones experience are just that. They're deep pains that hurt. But the ache that grows in us out of these pains, the longing, that may be a redemptive gift. Sometimes pain and disappointment put us in touch with the ache for love and the ache for something more, the ache for God. That's what it means to be alive and to touch God in this life. There's a philosopher and a theologian named Pete Rollins who talks about all the many ways that people want to eliminate our vulnerabilities and eliminate our longings and our needs. Because to be incomplete, to not have all the love we need, to not have all the satisfaction or answers we need, is to ache, is to feel empty. Which from one angle is kind of lousy. Right? Who wouldn't want to be happy and satisfied, to be certain and fulfilled all the days of our lives? And yet those things are impossible for humans. We're vulnerable. We die, all of us. So to foster distractions or addictions or scapegoats or even religious systems that try to make us undoubtedly